Folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again uh, from the Highway 7 Ridge Line in TSPN, that's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is May 16, 2012. This is episode 902 of the Survival Podcast as we march forward toward the monumentous episode 1000. The 800 number to call with your testimonials for episode eight, uh, 1000 will be put out tomorrow on the blog, so make sure to check so that you can call in and be part of episode 1000. It's going to be really, really awesome. Uh, today's show is going to be really cool, though. i got a guy hanging on the line that chooses to just go by the name of France and, and nothing more, and I'll tell you a bit about him in a moment. What I'll tell you for now is he's a sailor, and he's here to talk about the life of a sailor, building your own boat, and some other really cool stuff like that. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, westernbotanicals.com. You know, when I want something herbal and I don't have it, or I can't find it growing in my backyard, I go over to westernbotanicals.com and I find it. If I have trouble finding it, well, I pick the phone up and I call them, and then they help me. And a real person that really gives a damn about me answers the phone and does everything they can to help me uh, take care of myself in a natural way. Uh, whether it's preventative or acute conditions I'm dealing with or for my wife as well, uh, they've been a real blessing. Uh, my wife has hip pain and neck pain, and uh, using one of their anti-inflammatory products primarily made up of turmeric has, has got her cutting her use of things like Advil and Tylenol almost to nothing. And, and that's a big deal because those things are harmful on the kidneys and liver, and that is just one example. Stomach as well, of course. That's just one example of how they might be able to help you. So check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Remember, they also support the MSB with uh, their Discount Buyers Club or uh, for free. That's $50 a year for your first year, and it's free. Uh, so if you're MSB, make sure you get that. There's instructions to call in in the back area of the member support brigade. Uh, consecutive years are at half price if you want to keep it, but it'll pay for itself, folks, and it's free if you're an MSB member. Uh, it provides you 25% off all your orders, so that adds up real fast. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. You know, if you want to learn how to make knives, you can go to KnifeKits.com and do it. If you already know how to make knives and you need cool stuff to make knives with, you can go to knifekits.com and you can do that. You want exotic steel? They got it. You want kind of simple, uh, plain, everyday steel to make lower cost uh, knives as you're learning? They got that. You want kits that kind of just fit together and all you do is final form and fit and finish and select your handle material? They got that. You want to make knives and you have no idea? I mean, you're not even sure which end of a file is the right direction to go, and you need a DVD or a book that will walk you through step-by-step. Step. They got that, too. They got it all, and their uh, their ratings from the uh, all the different blade forms out there are absolutely outstanding. They're very happy to be a sponsor of the show. They love doing business with you guys, and they'd love to have more of your business. So if you'd like to make knives or you're already doing it, check them out today. Again, KnifeKits.com. They also provide a discount to member support brigade members. Uh, another example of a sponsor that steps up and does even more than they have to. Next up today, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the primary social media outlets that I use. I put out a cool thing today on Facebook and Twitter about a redneck garden. I called it redneck permaculture, and this guy using scavenged parts 
to create an automatic watering system on his farm. It was really cool. It was less than four minutes long, sent to me by a listener. Won't fit in to be on the show, but it works out to be able to be shared with the audience. That's the kind of thing I do on Facebook and Twitter all the time, and that's a good reason to hook up with me there. You can also check out tspcopper.com. That way you can get some really cool copper medallions and support causes like The Real Truth About Money, the Survival Podcast, the Second Amendment, Ron and Rand Paul, and more. Uh, and you beekeepers, we even have a honeypot coin. Check it out today, tspcopper.com. Also, you get a discount there if you're MSB. Last but not least, on the MSB, join the MSB. Support this show at 18.3 cents per episode. You get all the great discounts and more that I just talked about. You get a whole bunch of content that's available nowhere else. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks, and I'm working on bringing on somebody that wants to sell body armor to you as soon as I can get one of those body armor guys to understand how the MSB actually works. When I get that done, I'm talking to three right now. When one of them can say, here's the program, here's the discount, here's the code, point, click, and buy, I will bring you a body armor person. Uh, until then, well, I'll keep looking. Uh, with that, I've got everything wrapped up. I want to bring our special guest on for you now. Again, his name is Franz, and uh, he's from the uh, Salt Lake City area. He considers himself a prepper. He's also a sailor and a ham radio guy. He built a sailboat uh, on, and a mountain home. So he built both his own house and his own boat. And uh, he finished both of those years ago. Eventually, he sailed his boat across the entire Atlantic Ocean. Now, so this guy built his own boat and sailed across the Atlantic. He did that in 1997. Now he spends two months a year sailing over in the Mediterranean. He'll talk to us a little bit about that. He believes preppers can learn about wa a lot about water, refrigeration, 12-volt electricity, medical supplies from small boat cruising sailors, because, of course, a sailboat is a very self-contained survival vessel. He's here to talk to us about all that and more, and with that, hey, Franz, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Hey, I want to give uh, give you a, 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 just a, just a note. I've... Uh, I went back on my iPod, and I got to tell you, you're taking up most of the uh, 160 gigabytes on my iPod right now. I've got all your shows back to about 63, so that's when I started started listening to you, and I've never erased one of those shows from my iPod. And I I really enjoy your show, and I get a lot out of it, and I've uh, I've really changed my life around as a result of uh, of listening to you, Jack. So I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Well, thanks, Franz. And I'll, I'll tell you, usually the people that have been listening for a long time make the best interviews because they know the audience as well. And uh, thanks for listening. But again, thanks for being here. Um, but we're here to talk today about uh, becoming sailors and, and what we learned about self-sufficiency from the uh, sailing lifestyle. And you, of course, as I said during the introduction segment, you uh, sailed a boat across the Atlantic in '97. Uh, and uh, you built that boat yourself. So, what led you to become a sailor in the first place? Well, it's it's a it's a little bizarre. I grew up in Utah and uh, landlocked state, but uh, you know, when I was a kid, National Geographic had a series of uh, a guy by the name of Robin Graham who was sailing his boat around the world at the age of sixteen, and and I always had uh, travel. Uh, a travel bug in me and my family never really traveled but it's something I always wanted to do and I thought wow what a great way of traveling you get to go to places that you really can't get to any other way and 
And that, that dream stayed with me. I mean, it started when I was probably 13 years old, and it never died. It was just one of these uh, these desires that people get that, uh, that you know, there was, I read every book I could find on the subject. I, uh, I, I, I realized early on that I wasn't going to be able to buy a boat because boats are so, so expensive. So I, I knew I was going to build my own boat. And so I studied everything I could on building boats. And this is before, you got to understand, this is before I'd actually ever done any sailing. I, I, um, I, I knew, I remember reading Thor Heyerdahl's uh, Contiki and how he sailed a, a raft across the ocean to the Easter Islands from, uh, from off of South America. And, and he, uh, he kept in touch with ham radio. So I got my ham radio license. I got my general license because I knew there'd be a need to communicate. So along the way, you know, before I'd even sailed, I'd, I'd done everything I could to prepare myself to do this. And I think, you know, you don't know how things are going to end up, but you got to do what you can do with what you have. So, you know, I went through college and I, uh, I graduated from college and I still hadn't sailed. Um, and I got married and I told my wife my dream to, to be a sailor and to sail across the, uh, to do a transoceanic passage at some point in time. And, and my wife said, that's wonderful. I, you know, I, I, I'm glad you have these dreams. This is great. Uh, she, so she was very supportive. And, uh, in fact, it was my wife that actually finally got me the opportunity to learn to sail. And it was, um, she had a book club or some, social group that she belonged to and and one of the wives mentioned that her husband was a sailor on the great salt lake and um, was looking for crew and my wife came back and told me and and uh, that's how i learned to sail was racing boats on the great salt lake and a lot of people think well that's you know that's pretty pretty mild sailing but it's really not um, the Great Salt Lake is only about 30 feet deep, and the waves are, are very, the water is very dense because of the salinity of the lake. And, um, and when it blows, it, the waves build up very square, very, very steep, choppy waves. And people that have never been seasick in their life will, be, will get seasick on the Great Salt Lake. So I sailed with him for, oh, probably... Uh, I still sail with him now. I mean, this has been 30 years now, but I still sail with him. But he's the one that taught me to sail, and it was by racing sailing that I learned to sail. And uh, and I always suggest that anybody that wants to to become a sailor, that's probably the best way to go about it. Go uh, go down to your local yacht club. Uh, just tell them that you don't know anything. You're willing to volunteer on anybody that needs an extra hand on board. And there's always sailors down there that. Uh, that don't have their crew or their crew didn't show up that night and they want to, they want to sail and they want to race. And the advantage of learning to sail by racing is you learn to sail in all conditions. You know, you don't just throw in the race because the wind comes up. You learn to deal with it. So you learn to sail in very light air conditions where there's just a zephyr of wind out there and very heavy air where there's strong, strong winds. And on the Great Salt Lake, um, the winds can change instantly because you can actually see the dust storms come in off the desert and uh, you might have 30 seconds to prepare for it, but there'll be extremely strong winds that can go from no wind at all to very strong winds in a very short period of time. So that's, that's how I learned to sail. Now, after I'd learned to sail, I went ahead and uh, 
bought a Holland deck uh, from a company in Costa Mesa, California. It's a very, uh, a very seaworthy design. I chose. It's uh, it's called a Bristol Channel Cutter, and it's 28 feet on deck. Now, explain what you mean by that. You bought a hole and a deck. Because to the non-sailor, we might go. Does that mean you bought a boat or you bought parts of a boat? What, what does that mean? Yeah, if you look at a boat. Uh, you know the basic form of a boat is the is the hull. Everybody looks at the the shape of a boat. So the hull is basically the shell that surrounds the boat on the bottom. That's what keeps the water out, and the deck is uh, is what's over the top of the boat. But I, so that's what a hull and deck is. The so hull and deck is just basically this fiberglass structure that. Uh, that's all it is, just a fiberglass structure. It didn't have any of the woodwork on it. It didn't have the mast. It didn't have the rigging. It didn't have the engine. It didn't have the electricity. Uh, so I spent, uh, you know, after I bought the Holland Deck, you sit there and look at it. It's just like this big bathtub in your backyard, and you say, you scratch your head, and you say, oh, my gosh, what did I take on? But, you know, it's it's like anything. You just concentrate on one project at a time and uh, took five years but uh, eventually it got done and it was launched I launched up in Bellingham Washington and uh, you know it's a beautiful boat I mean I get compliments on it everywhere I go but I had a lot of help from uh, from uh, the boat manufacturer in Costa Mesa to make sure I did it right he didn't want me to do a poor job on building the boat so you know with that I you know you had to do the rigging you had to uh, the standing rigging, which is what holds up the mast, and then the boom, and the you know had to do all the woodwork. You had to do the, all the electricity, and and this is where you know my experience with 12 volts comes in handy because almost all these boats run on 12 volts. You may have an inverter in there, but 12 volts are a, a standard on a sailboat, standard on most boats. So you get to uh, you get pretty used to dealing with 12 volted 12 volt uh, lighting and 12 volt um, radios everything is 12 volt and you i have a couple little inverters for charging my computer when i get on board but uh but other than that it's pretty much all 12 volt systems on a boat so i took five years building it launched up in bellingham washington and uh sailed up in the northwest for uh for about five years and bellingham washington that encompasses the san juan islands and the gulf islands and one year I went all the way up the inside passage to the north end of Vancouver Island and then came around the uh, the outside, down on the Pacific side. And uh, it was it was just delightful of anybody that sailed up in that area. And, the, and when, it, when the weather is good, it is just, just fantastic. You've got uh, wonderful fish you can catch. You've got crabs you can catch. You can... Uh, you, know, you can pick up oysters off the rocks in some places. It's uh, it's a delightful place to sail. It's just gorgeous, and I and I really enjoy that. And my daughters were very young at the time, so they grew up they grew up basically sailing with me. So uh, I dragged them along with me on my adventures. They think they were so. so is, did you end up uh, building another boat or buying another boat? Because how'd you get from the Pacific to the Atlantic? Did you? Cruise to the canal. I mean, how'd that work out? No, I, uh, I, I, I've read a lot of accounts of people that have gone down through the canals, but that would have taken me about another year. Sure. No, I just loaded it up on a semi truck and shipped it from uh, from um, 
I guess I pulled it out of Anacortes, Washington, and brought it down to Salt Lake and did some more modifications on the boat to prepare it for the transatlantic, and then okay. then took it from the uh, again on a semi truck from Salt Lake on to Hampton, Virginia, is where I launched the boat for the. Crossing. And how big how big was your boat? It's 28 feet on deck, 37 okay. feet overall, if you include the bowsprit and the uh, and the boomkin. And the bowsprit is just that wooden piece that sticks out the front of traditional-looking sure. boats. And the boomkin is a, is a wooden piece that goes off the back that holds the uh, the, the backstay. So it's a full keel boat. Uh, if you look at the America's Cup boats, you'll see the keel is very narrow and goes down. So those boats are like, like uh, sports cars compared to a... My boat, you might say, is more like a semi truck in the way they maneuver. It's very, very slow. Um, it's difficult to maneuver my boat in tight quarters just because of the full keel. But when you get out on a long passage, that full keel gives you a lot of directional stability. So the boat sure. almost sail itself. So, awesome. so I sailed it across. Uh, well, I guess we should back up a little ways. Um, you know. People people always dream about uh, doing what they want to do, and everybody sort of thinks to themselves, well, you know, someday I'll do this and someday I'll do that, and that's sort of the way I was too. Someday I was going to uh, to sail across the Atlantic uh, or the Pacific. Um, my wife and I, during this time, we had chartered a boat one time in, uh, in, in uh, Tahiti in French Polynesia. A friend of mine did some work for a guy that owned a boat, and part of the part of his construction payment was a loan of his boat, so he traded out his boat. And he, he, my friend didn't know how to sail at the time, so he asked me to go sailing with. So, so I went down to the South Pacific with my wife, and we sailed a charter boat for two weeks down there. And we just—that's when my wife became convinced this is pretty nice. This is a pretty nice way to go. Then another time, my I took my parents and my sister and brother, and we chartered a boat over in Greece. Uh, for about a week and a half. So we had had uh, both the South Pacific, which everybody imagines is just, uh, it is beautiful, it's delightful, and then, and then Greece. And there's two different, two different areas. So I, I could go east or I could go west. It uh, didn't really matter to me. I just wanted to do a transoceanic passage. Uh, but so I'd always had this dream, and my wife knew about it, and I'm, we're going along through life. And during this period of time, I'm building... The boat. I'm building my wife her dream. My, my wife had a dream of of uh, having a summer home up where her family has a summer home area up in the in the Uinta Mountains in Utah, which is a beautiful area. It's a, we've got a river that runs down through our valley, and it's surrounded by national forest. And it's about uh, oh, the family, the various branches of the family control about a thousand acres of that land that's that's surrounded by national forest, and it's just beautiful. And it's I love going up there as well. So. In the winter, I'd work on my boat, building my boat, and in the summer, I would uh, work on our our summer home, our cabin, and build that for her. So both these projects were finished about the same time. So, and I'm still fairly young. I'm in my 30s at that point in time. And uh, I got a call from a friend, and he said, I had two, I had two close friends growing up, and one of my one of my friends called me and he said uh, John was killed in an automobile accident, and he's the same age as me. So I went to his funeral and and they talked a little bit about what he did with his life, and he was about the same age as me, so still fairly young. But he but what they kept talking about was what he wanted to do in life, and uh, and that 
just struck home to me. You know, we never know when the tapestry runs out. So after that funeral, I came home and I told my wife, I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to sail across the Atlantic or, or the Pacific. It doesn't matter which way I go. You can choose the direction we go, but I'm going to do it. And she said, well, we'll do it someday. We'll do it someday, honey. Maybe, maybe we're not quite ready. I said, well, what do you mean by ready? And, uh, she said, well, you know, financially we may not be ready. And, and I said, well, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an accountant by training, so I put together a balance sheet, and I said, well, tell me what number is ready. Where, at what point in time is good enough? And she couldn't argue from a financial point of view because we'd done a pretty good job of saving our money along the way. But I think it was just the fear of, of actually doing it. Uh, and I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with your, uh, with your blessings or without it. And so she finally she, she, she agreed. She said, get some more life insurance and uh, – and go ahead and go for it. So I said, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to, to the Mediterranean or do you want to go to the South Pacific? You choose the direction because once I get there, we're going to be spending more time there in the summers. And so she wanted to go She wanted to go to the Mediterranean. And not because the sailing was better and the water was better. It was just culturally it was much, much more enjoyable. Um, you can go 10 miles and be in a totally different culture in the Mediterranean where uh, and that's what we enjoy. The sailing is terrible. You're usually motoring everywhere in the Mediterranean, or it's too too windy. But culturally, it's a, a very interesting place to travel, and and it's a lot of fun. So that's how I ended up finally doing what I intended to do for years. But it wasn't. If it hadn't have been for my friend uh, being killed in an automobile accident, I may not have done it. Uh, yeah, I understand that completely. I, I remember when I lost uh, my buddy Hal about a year and a half ago, and I remember all the things he talked about doing, and it was one of those things, it's like, you know, we're going we're gonna to put the hammer down on our lives, and we're going we're gonna to get these things done, and I think it is a wake-up call, and hopefully a lot of people listening can get that wake-up call from the experience of others rather than waiting for it to, to venture into your own life. Well, I agree. I mean, and, and I think what you have to do, though, you have first before you can live your dream, you got to have a dream, and I think that's a deficit so many people have. Everybody Agreed. looks for for somebody else to create their dream for. It's got to be. It's got to come internally. It's got to be something you you really want. There's somehow, and you know, you've you've, you've experienced this, Jack, and I've experienced this. You cannot figure out how you're going to get from A to B. You just have to start one step and start moving down this path, and suddenly things open up to you. I mean, I, 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 it's almost supernatural, and I'm not a religious person, but it's almost like when you need it, something shows up for you. You know, when I needed to get my engine, suddenly there was another $7,000 that somehow it showed up. And, and when I needed to learn how to do something, well, well, there, well, lo and behold, there happened to be a person here in Salt Lake that was there to help me with it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you can't explain these things, and and, it, and rationally it makes no sense at all. But it does occur. But you first have to, you first have to be starting to look out for yourself and trying to achieve what you can with what you have available. And you've experienced this, I'm sure. I just watched it happen uh, when I was at the uh, seminar with Sepp Holzer. Uh, he blew up the, 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 the plan to something that the landowner just couldn't conceive of even planting because there wasn't an, she couldn't afford all of the stuff. And the scope of the project attracted people who gave plantings to her. And it's, it's one of those things that if we're open, stuff like that seems to happen all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing how that how that how that occurs. Now let's talk about. Um, I'd like to, if you real quick, I'd like to talk about some of the skills because you built a boat and then you did all the sailing. And from a prepper viewpoint, there has to be a lot of skills beyond uh, how to sail directly. You know, like other peripheral skills that that may have really uh, you developed along the way. Well, yeah, you you uh, I, I you know I took wood shop as a kid, and almost all the building I did on the boat was either mechanical, electrical, or or woodwork. So, but again, remember in the in the winter or in the summer, I'm building a summer home, so I know heavy construction. I know framing. I, my friends, when I grew up, were, you know, that's what we did. We worked construction. And, uh, and that was back in a time when, uh, when in college, if you, if you worked construction for the summer, you had, a, you had some money to go back to school. Now, I never actually worked construction as a career, but all my friends did. So all my friends had all these skills, and I just hung around with them enough, and I learned a lot of skills as far as, as uh, heavy home building type construction goes but i didn't really know anything about uh cabinet making with and and turning curves so you learn if you have a desire and you can read and you can conceptualize you can learn pretty much anything you want to learn through books now you can learn theoretically but their actual practice is not going to come about until you start doing it i remember when i started out with big pieces of wood and i'd make a mistake and Pretty soon those big pieces of wood were small pieces of wood, but uh, you you learn and you make mistakes. But I, yeah, So I had to learn basically cabinet making, and not just cabinet making with square corners and uh, you know 90 degree angles. Everything on a boat is curved, so you've got to learn how to make double bevels. You got you know it's it's not only curved one way, it's curved the other way. So if you're trying to fit a piece to the hull, you've got to you've got to be able to make a scribed line and be able to cut that curve and make that fit. So it's a lot harder than just square corners. So I had to learn cabinet making and I had to learn uh, fiberglassing because the bulkheads were fiberglassed against the hull. And I had to learn uh, wiring, electrical wiring. Of course, a lot of the DC circuitry I'd already learned about through my study of ham radio theory, general theory. You, you just pick that up. That's not hard. Uh, I had to learn how to mount the engine. I had to learn how to hook up the engine. I had to learn how to put the tanks in, and and uh, all these skills are just great skills to have. I learned to I learned to weld. I learned to do TIG welding because I welded my own stainless steel water tank uh, up, and uh, so and I learned machine shop because I'd I'd take some I I needed to machine some specific pieces for the boat. So I'd take a uh, machine shop class that was offered by the community education and go out and learn to use their lathes and mills. And, and uh, you, you know, and it's fun. This, is stu- this stuff is fun. Learning this stuff is fun. Now, I, my job is I sit at a desk and stare at a computer eight hours a day. So for me, I don't. last thing I want to do is come home at night and stare at a computer. I need to do something. I need to create something. I get a real sense of satisfaction out of building with my hands, so to me this wasn't this wasn't work. This was just a form of recreation and and keeping myself sane. So you learn all these skills, and you know what you don't know, you learn from others. I mean, all my good ideas I stole from somebody else. I readily admit that. Uh, I learned how to make molds 
for sand casting for my bronze fittings. I cast all my portholes. And um, so, you know, and I actually wrote an article in Wooden Boat Magazine on how to make these molds, and it was published. Um, so you learn all these skills, all these great skills that, uh, that are just, you know, you know how to do things, and it's fun. Um, so those are the skills that, you know, that you pick up when, when you take on any project like this. It seems overwhelming at the time, uh, but if you have the curiosity and you're open to learning, you, you, you pick these up. It's fun. It's just fun. So, um, you know, and you think about a boat and the sailboat, especially a cruising sailboat. It's really a self-sufficient vessel. Uh, you've got everything on board that to keep you alive. You've got to have your water, especially in the ocean. You have to have enough fresh water to get by. You need to... Yeah, talk about how you handle that because you can carry so much and you've got to go to a port or, I mean, how, how do you handle things like water and energy and communications when you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? All right, well, when we sailed, and probably the best example of this is uh, it took us 22 days to get from Hampton, Virginia to the Azores. So that was 22 days of self-sufficiency we had to have on board. Um, we had uh, 30 gallons of water in the internal tanks, and we carried about uh, five or six external jerry cans, collapsible plastic uh, water jugs on deck. Uh, we we had, uh, I think, about 30 gallons of diesel fuel uh, down below. Uh, and... We, once we left port, we didn't use the engine except to charge the batteries. We had a refrigerator uh, on board. And by the way, 12-volt refrigeration can be extremely efficient if you, uh, if you make a, a good icebox, if the insulation around the icebox is good. You can, it's very efficient to, uh, to cool down things. But we didn't use the icebox. We just turned off the electricity because we didn't want to have to recharge the batteries that much. So we just, uh, we had plenty of food. We had a cured ham that we had. We had a lot of canned foods. We had uh, a lot of uh, carbohydrates. And, and one thing, I, I was thinking when I was preparing for this interview, a couple tips I want to pass on. If you've got a bug out bag and you need to worry about water, you probably need to avoid um, meats and proteins as much as possible. And I'd read this uh, this in the past, but I hadn't really experienced it. We had been out a couple weeks, and uh, we'd been eating a lot of carbohydrates, some pastas, some rices, some breads. Uh, one of the crew members would get up and make bread on his watch, so we always had fresh bread. Um, but we were dragging a line behind the boat, and one day a, a bluefin tuna took it, and so we ate a lot of tuna all at once, and I I couldn't get enough water. It was very thirsty. We suddenly I needed to drink a lot of water. So if you ever you know if you're and if you're on a life raft, you'll notice they don't put much protein in the in the emergency rations in a life raft because protein requires a lot of a lot of water to digest. So if you're ever in a situation where you need to conserve water as much as possible, you're you're better off eating carbohydrates than uh, than meats and a lot of proteins just just a tip there so anyway we had plenty of food food wasn't the issue when we got to the azores uh we still had plenty of food on board and we still had plenty of water we didn't uh we showered uh, we 
we would use seawater for washing ourselves. Uh, we might rinse off with a little fresh water, but it's amazing how far 30 gallons of water goes. If you're not flushing the toilet and taking 10-minute showers, um, 30 gallons of water will last you a long time. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, when, I got to the, when we got to the Azores, both my crew members had given up uh, smoking, and I'd lost about 20 pounds, so I thought, well, we could probably sell this program to... Uh, to health nuts, but it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, it's easy to prepare. You just have to think, you just have to just start working backwards. I, you did a video on calories and working backwards on calories on a, on a, uh, on a bug out, uh, or some, some emergency rations and you work backwards from calories. That's much more scientific than we did. We just went to, uh, to Costco and grabbed everything we could see and, and uh, stored it on board. A lot of canned foods because, you know, canned foods are easily storable. Uh, we didn't have anything that really required refrigeration. We had eggs, and eggs, as long as you turn them over every day, don't need refrigeration. Um, so we had plenty of food. Food wasn't an issue. Uh, water was okay. We still had water when we got to the Azores. We probably could have gone maybe another 15 days with the stores we had on board without really trying to uh, to ration it all. So it's just a, a very self-contained and self-sufficient uh, way of traveling. Uh, electricity, we, I tuned my, my uh, backstay to, to be an antenna, to be a 20-meter antenna, so I could tune the 20-meter ham band. And so I had a Kenwood uh, transceiver on board, and so communication, this is before the time of cell phones. This is in 97, so, and before the satellite phones. They may have existed, but it was too expensive to use. So my communication back home was basically by shortwave radio, the ham bands, the 20-meter band. And it just so happened, as I was going out across the Atlantic, there was a, uh, a ham radio operator in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that was uh, broadcasting, and he was keeping in touch with some missionaries in Africa. And it just so happened that the bounce of his signal would hit me, and he came in loud and clear pretty much every night. So I was able to communicate with him, and he would uh, in turn communicate with my wife where my location was and so forth. When we got beyond the Azores, I lost track of him, but I could hear the, uh, the people in Africa he was talking to. So I could talk to them, they would talk to him, and then he would pass on the information to my to my wife so that's uh that's pretty much how i was able to communicate now when we're thinking of do you have any questions jack yeah i'm, I'm just letting you go because <laughs> it's a fascinating story um kind of a, a little bit of a segue um you built a house too yeah uh, right what, what what was more difficult building a boat or building a house Oh, I mean, physically, a house is more difficult because it's just bigger and heavier, uh, but uh, mentally, it was much more difficult to build a boat. Uh, you know, a house is pretty straightforward. They're, everything's straight and cut at 90 degrees. The, the boards are bigger. You're moving big pieces of plywood. Um, totally, really, it's totally different construction. I mean, it's uh, a boat is very... You have to build everything extremely strong in a boat. 
you know, a house, you throw a few, two, you know, through na- 16 penny nails in the end of a two by four and you throw up a wall and then you nail on sheet on, on, on plywood. It's pretty straightforward. And then you put uh, the exterior siding on it. And the sh- it's, a house is, is more work, uh, but it's not difficult work. A boat is, um, is very, it's more like watchmaking, you know, it's it's much more intricate. I, mean, I remember one day sitting in the boat, and I needed to make a. Uh, it was only probably a, a foot by foot and a half foot piece, but it had multiple angles on it, and it took me a full day just to cut that one board. It was cut a little bit, see if it fit. Cut a little bit more, see if it fit. Uh, because you cut too much, you can't put the wood back on. So. You know, I just look at these, and these were what held the speakers for the stereo system in the boat. And it, it, it just takes a long time to get things fit right in a boat. And uh, the boat is held up fine. I mean, the boat's over 20 years old now. I mean, it's almost 25 years old, and the boat's held up just fine. The boat's never been in doubt. Only the crew's been in doubt. And it's been through some very rough storms over the years. Um and it's, and it's made. It's uh, when the surveyor went and looked at the boat for my insurance. Uh, he had a question on the uh, the survey form. It said limits to navigation, and he had already written none before I got there. He said, "Yeah, this is a seaworthy boat. This is a boat that's made for going pretty much anywhere in the world, and that's what I wanted to do. It's been my magic carpet. It's really been uh, it's really been fun to to use that and go places that I never would have imagined I would have gone before." Yeah, um, my other thought is, in all that time out there, you talked about using your ham radio to stay in touch with your wife and relaying information, and I think that is something we all need to sit and think about how, how lucky we are that we have the advances in communications that we do. But did you ever have need to use it for emergency communication? Well, we did. Uh, we got in, there were quite a few storms on the passage from the Hampton, Virginia to the A's. In fact, 18 of the 22 days to get there was in stormy weather. And I had two great crew members. Uh, both these guys were from Elko, Nevada, and neither one really had much sailing experience. But, but both of them were, were what I call self-made men, self-sufficient men. They, you know, they, you give them a problem, they'll figure a way to solve a problem. And that's what I. And they were good storytellers, and that was very important. They were they were fun to be with. They had good stories to tell, and and uh, and so. One of them, and one of them was up on the foredeck, uh, pulling down the uh, the the jib. This is a big foresail on the boat uh, because we were coming into some strong weather. And he was out there, and the boat was bouncing around, and he got uh, almost knocked into the water. And my other friend reached out and grabbed him and pulled him up. And in the in the process of doing that, he wrenched his shoulder quite badly, and he was in a lot of pain. And we had a great medical kit on board. We we could practically do anything. My my wife's a nurse, and she made sure I had a good medical kit. Uh, but there's not much you can do for for uh, for that sort of an injury. We we communicated with uh, some medical professionals on what to do, and basically it was uh, you know keep him down, uh, keep the the arm from moving as much as possible, and and that's about all you could do. Um, When he got back to the States, I think he had a rotator cuff injury that had to be operated on, 
but there wasn't much you could do out there for it. All you could do is just uh, immobilize it, basically. Uh, so that was the emergency we had. Uh, fortunately, that was the only emergency we had. Uh, nobody got sick. Um, but, yeah, it's nice to have that. Uh, we probably could have got by. We, you know, Common sense told us to do what the medical profession told us to do anyway, so it wasn't like we wouldn't have figured that out without it. But it was just nice to have that confirmation that that was the right thing to do. And I guess there's probably a lot uh, that you guys have to be self-sufficient on with as far as uh, medical stuff uh, overall, because you talk about where there is no doctor, there really is no doctor unless you happen to have one. No, and and we had uh, I had lots of antibiotics, and I had lots of uh, painkillers, and I had you know I had a the first aid kit uh, that was made for for this sort of uh, this sort of an expedition. Uh, but fortunately, and you know, it's the best. The best preparation is the preparation you never need. And I carry that kit still, but I've, I've never really needed it. One time when I was sailing up in the Northwest, I uh, I got on the boat and a piece of wire that was supposed to be hidden wasn't hidden, uh, cut my knee. And uh, we had sutures on board. And my wife's a nurse. I said, just stitch it up. And she said, no, just go to the doctor. So. You know, we've got the we've got the gear, but if you don't have to use the gear, you're better off going to a professional get it fixed. Um, so I've never had to use um, uh, anything more than basic band aids on the medical kit. Sure, but I mean, you need to have it. I guess yeah. it's more and, and know what to do with it because you don't know what's going to happen. Exactly, and you know, if you've got it, you're never going to need it. That's the best thing about it. You know, if you're prepared, chances are you're never going to need it. If you're not prepared, you're going to wish you had it. So You'll need it tomorrow <laughs> if you don't have it. That's I, I've learned that with everything in my life, especially when I could have had it, but I chose not to. It, it's almost inevitable that, like, that decision was, like, actually a choice going, don't do it, don't leave it behind. And then, you know, when you leave the, uh, the air compressor, you get a flat tire, that type of thing. We, we talked a little bit about figuring out how – much water and food and everything that you need during a long trip. What are some ways that you conserve things, though, like water and electricity on a boat, other than not eating lots of protein, I guess, for the water? Well, basically, it's amazing. Even now, I hardly ever use uh, much water on the boat. I, In the Mediterranean, a lot of people buy bottled water, but I quit doing that a long time ago. I prefer to uh, just... You know, use the tap water I get at marinas, and then I use a, a catadine filter to filter it and fill up my water bottles. And it's number one, it's cheaper. Number two, it's just easier because you're not hauling, you know, gallons of water down to the boat every every day just to just to drink. And I drink a lot of water in the summer, but uh, so on a passage like that, when you don't have the access to the water, first of all, you only the only thing you use the water for is drinking. And if you're going to cook, then you're going to use seawater for about half the water for cooking. So you, uh, you you don't use the water for anything but but drinking. That's the most important thing. That's the easiest thing to to do. You don't use you know you, you don't use it to flush a toilet on a boat. Of course, you just use seawater for that. But uh, you just don't use it for anything but drinking. Now, when I have a sh- when in the summer when I have access to other water, I have. Um, um, and this is a, a good thing to have for anybody, whether they're on the on the uh, on the ocean on a boat or just in a, uh, a van or something. But we use 
insect sprayers that uh, filled with fresh water. And uh, when I go, when I want to take a shower, I get in the water and I'll I'll uh, get wet. And I notice I use uh, if you use Pantene shampoo, it'll suds up in salt water. So you can use Pantene to to uh, basically as a soap to wash your hair and wash your body. And then I'll jump back in the water and rinse it all off with salt water. Then get back up on deck, and I will use what uh, you know, what divers call Sammies but basically are a chamois, a synthetic cloth, and get most of the salt water off with, uh, with the sammy, and then just take the, the fresh water and spritz me off. And that pretty much takes all the, uh, the last little remainder of salt off your body, and it's, very, it's a very efficient way of using fresh water for, uh, for showering. We do that all summer long, and it's amazing how long these uh, spray spray these insect spray bottles will last and keep them as clean. So that's that's a good hit tip you could use whether you're uh, you know you're at a beach, uh, car camping, or using a van or something like that where you don't have access to showers. Because as a sailor, that's what you're always looking for is a place to shower. And yeah, I mean because you can only do so much showering with salt water because you end up sticky and and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So that was. Kind of my question uh, next, and you really kind of took care of answering it there, though. Um, what about like energy requirements? Are you use when you're out like that? You know, you you're using your sails, so I guess you got generators. Are you doing anything with solar or wind or or, or what have you? Other than to obviously, you know, when you're sailing, you use wind energy to move the boat. But I'm talking like as far as you've got all this 12 volt stuff. It's it would seem like a natural fit. Yeah, and and when I when I I've tried a couple different things on the boat. When I, I'd heard of a system of using um, a tow line, a tow propeller behind the boat when you're under sail to turn a generator and generate electricity. And so I bought one of those and I put it on the boat and it lasted about uh, three days and it, to- it just twisted off. So that, that was a system that did not work. Um, but I do have two solar panels on my boat, um, and I think they're about 25 watts each, one off each side of the boat, and that will be enough to almost uh, cover the draw on the refrigerator. I've got a new refrigerator that's much more efficient than the original one I put in, and that will more than cover the draw on the new. They've really imp- improved the efficiency of these 12-volt refrigeration systems in the last 10 years. So they're becoming extremely efficient. So 12-volt uh, uh, solar panels, and that will also charge the uh, battery. And uh, But for the most part, I, I run off 12 volts off the alternator on the, on the engine. That will charge the batteries as fast as anything. And in the Mediterranean, I wish I could sail more, but you end up motoring a lot more than you, than you think you will. It's not like in the trade winds in the Caribbean. In the Caribbean, you end up sailing everywhere. But in the Mediterranean, it's either too much wind or too little wind, and you end up motoring a lot more than you than you like. But, you know, it's a 30-horsepower diesel, and it's amazingly efficient. Uh, the diesel engine I have on the boat is a Yanmar, just a gem of an engine. It's a great engine. I've had very little trouble with it over the years. So that's that's how I charge the batteries and and top off the batteries but i also have solar power and if the batteries 
wouldn't, uh, if the battery got totally discharged, I could just basically stop at anchor and wait a day or two in the solar panels and eventually charge the batteries to the point where I could start the engine. Now, the, one of the big things that, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, the efficiency of solar and the advantages of solar, but I have to caution people. Solar panels are one expense. Batteries are another entire expense, and people think that batteries will last forever. I found that I have to replace my batteries on the boat about every four years, um, and they're a big expense, especially uh, in the European countries. They they tax the heck out of everything over there. So batteries, if you're looking at putting in a solar system, you better look at the cost of the batteries and know you're going to be needing to replace those batteries every few years. Uh, at least that's been my experience. Okay, well, that, that makes perfect sense. My other thought is, you know, obviously there's nothing more free than, than being out on the ocean and being able to go basically to any shoreline in the world, but do you see any uh, advantages for somebody using this as kind of a getaway, not, and when I say getaway, I mean during a harsh time or something like that, that is on maybe a very large uh, body of freshwater like the Great Lakes or something like that? Yeah, the thing is, most people uh, always assume you can go anywhere with a boat. What you're, where you're going to in a boat is at anchorage, and anchorages are are uh, are safe harbors that are protected from the elements. And and uh, so, you know, you don't want to just go out and float around in the middle of the lake. Uh, if you need to get away for a short period of time from from chaos, that's a good thing to do. But if you're looking as a, a long-term situation. Uh, yeah, the Great Lakes would be great up in northern Michigan. There's a lot of anchorages up in that area that you could go to. Um, you know, I've got a friend. His name is Spike Hampson, and and he put a uh, – and this is where I'm coming down to bug outs. I mean, everybody – you know, a, a lot of people, a standard bug out scenario is either loading up the uh, the Land Cruiser or Jeep or, or truck and with all their gear and heading off. And I always think that, you know, if you're in a place like Los Angeles and you need to get out of Los Angeles and you're trying to get out with another 6 million people, you're not going to be able to get out. It's just going to be mass chaos trying to get out. To me, it makes more sense to uh, to look the other direction and look at the ocean. And if I were living in, uh, in, in, a, in an area like that where you've got limited freeway access because you're constrained by geography in the mountains, you, you should be looking at, uh, at getting offshore, going north or south off the coast. And, and even if I didn't own a boat I, and I were in those locations, I would befriend somebody with a boat. I'd go down to the yacht club. I'd learn how to sail. And there's, you walk around any marina, and most of those boats are never out sailing. Most of them sit at a slip, you know, 365 days a year. You befriend somebody, say you'll keep their, your eye on their boat if something happens. You'll go down and check the bilge to make sure it's not sinking. You befriend somebody, and if uh, and I've always thought uh, if if chaos occurred, if you needed to bug out, you'd be basically protecting the guy's property. You'd go borrow his boat and say, "Hey, I'm going to take your boat and keep it safe," and you would have a a vehicle for for getting out that way. Um, a friend of mine, Spike Hamps, I was going on to the store. He's he built, and it doesn't have to be a big sailboat. I mean, this is where I'm coming with this story. I mean, America was uh, 
opened up mostly by canoes, mostly by the navigable rivers. You went the navigable rivers as far as you could go before heading off overland. But a friend of mine built an 18 or 19 foot uh, single engine runabout named Spike Hampson. He's got a website by the same name. And he started in uh, Wyoming and went down, uh, I guess, the Wind River to the upper reaches of the Missouri River, down the Missouri River, up the Illinois River, through this, all through the Great Lakes, through the St. Lawrence Seaway, down the east coast of America, through the intercoastal waterway. And he's hopped out. Now the last place is it's uh, now in the Turks and Caicos Islands. So you've got some big water he's covered, but he just timed the passage so that the weather conditions were good. His goal is to take that boat all the way down to Buenos Aires, so he plans on going in uh, the Orinoco River and up Venezuela and into the Amazon River and all the internal rivers to uh, to Buenos Aires. So when you think of bugging out, don't ignore uh, the navigable waters of this country. And you've got in the east, you've got a lot of navigable waters. In the west, uh, you've got a few, but not as many as you do in the east. So if I were in the east, I'd be saying, okay. You've got these great rivers that they're used to run barge traffic up and down. They may be the best highways, not necessarily the interstates. Now, on international travel, um, how do countries control uh, the whole immigration thing? I mean, if you were, if you had a boat and you were off the coast of Florida and you went for a ride and you came into another port in Florida, nobody shows up and says, hey, where's your passport? Um, so how do they know it's a foreign vessel? Well, they don't, and uh, this is sort of an interesting story. I'd, I'd sailed uh, from Spain to Italy, and I'd, we'd done an overnight passage, and we'd ended up in uh, Sardinia. We'd left the Balearic Bi- Islands. I think we'd left uh, Menorca and sailed over to the Italian islands, Sardinia. And I needed to clear customs, and everywhere I went to clear customs, they said, oh, no, not today, not today. Finally, I found a place in Porto Cervo where they would, uh, where a guy said, oh, okay, okay, come back tomorrow, and he filled it out for me. But they're, uh, they're not as strict as, you, I mean, you're, self, you're supposed to be self-reporting. That's the bottom line. You're supposed to go in and say, hey, I'm here, you know, let's make sure I'm legal and do whatever paperwork we need to do. Uh, and I've always been self-reporting. You can go back and forth between Turkey and Greece, and for the most part, nobody knows if you've come from one or come from the other. It doesn't really make that much difference. But uh, if you're caught, then there's penalties to be paid for it. But for the most part, it's I've never had anybody show up at the boat when I arrived at uh, in a new country and saying, okay, show me your papers. I've always had to be pretty much self, self-reporting. And um, so... You know, I've always looked at the easiest way to bug out of a location if you had chaos is to find a boat and use a boat to get out because it's easier to, uh, you know, you just don't have as many roadblocks, as many barriers that could be placed in front of you on on water as you do on land, in my opinion. Well, yeah, and I mean, I'm not suggesting that anybody really use that to their advantage day to day, but it does seem like if there was an extreme situation that it, it could be... Uh, beneficial that somebody could find a place for a time, even if they didn't have documentation. It's probably not a good idea. But as we all know, when we prep, we prepare starting for like the most basic things to the most extreme. 
And those are those extreme things out there. And there may be somebody that doesn't have a passport for one reason or another that might find safe refuge during one of those extreme events. I agree. And, you know, first of all, though, I think people need to gain the skills that give them more options. And that's that's why I think people should uh, should should do what they can do to gain every skill and give themselves as many opportunities to do what you think is going to be best to do. And I think I think uh, handling a boat, uh, whether it's just a power boat or a sailboat, is is one of those, in my opinion, preparations that a lot of people should uh, should consider. And uh, if I mean, you mentioned kind of like just finding someone to to apprentice with, basically by volunteering on a deck, kind of makes me think of the one time I, I heard that you could in, in New Orleans volunteer to go out on a shrimp boat and get a bucket of shrimp at the end of the day, and uh, that that volunteer thing turned out to be the most expensive shrimp I ever purchased because I've never worked so hard in my life. Uh, but I mean, that would be one. But like when a person gets from that point where they do basically have the basic understanding and handling of a boat. Um, is it always like the best idea to build your own boat? Uh, say there's entry level stuff. I mean, how does the person kind of go to that next level? Uh, and maybe not everybody's going to be able to build their own boat. How do you how do you kind of answer that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of boats that are very good boats, and my boat. I just had this desire to make my boat uh, as a as a world cruising boat. But there's there's hundreds of boats. They all float, and uh, and really what you're talking about is is in what conditions do you want to use that boat? 99% of the time, I don't need a boat like mine. It's just that 1% of the time when I'm really glad that I've got that uh, that my heavy boat underneath me. But uh, I chose to build a boat because I couldn't afford to buy the boat that I built. Uh, and I didn't want to go in debt for a boat. Uh, so the other way to do it is... Uh, Probably the smartest way to do it is to have some friends that share jointly in the ownership of a boat, and uh, because the cost of a boat are going to be the same whether one person's using it or, or three or four people are using it, and um, you know, and, and and I you know I think that's going to be determined by what the person wants. I think the skills you the boats I learned to sail on the boat the racing boats I sailed on are so much more expensive and so much more difficult to sail than my boat is but so you learn on those boats and you can apply those lessons to any any boat um kind of like learning to drive a stick shift and then buying an automatic exactly exactly it's you learn the skills and you don't have to use the skills but you know the skills you know how to to uh you know how to tie the knots that you need to tie the knots i mean really simple stuff like that you don't need to, to a boat you can do you can learn a lot of the stuff without having getting on a boat but you need to get on a boat to uh to uh, to really hone your skills i have a commercial coast guard license it's a master's license and and before you can even sit for this license they require you have uh, like I don't remember how many days of, of actual experience over the last five years. It's usually like one year on the water in the last five years uh, on the water. So they won't even let you sit for the examination unless you have the on-water experience. And you and they do that for a reason because you can't anticipate everything that's going to happen until you're out there, you know, practicing the sport or practicing the skills that you've you've learned and and learning how to to adjust to un, unforeseen situations 
that the only way you gain those skills is to do it. And there, and even after you think you've gained them, there's always something you you find you don't know. So. Like like so many things in life, I would say experience is uh, not the only way, but it's certainly part of the way. Um, you actually have a, a blog and a YouTube channel that people can uh, learn more about this stuff on, right? Uh, I, I I put together a um, a. Um, website for people to share their travel stories. I love to listen to people tell stories, and I love travel stories. So I've got a website, uh, www.traveltradeexchange. And so far, it's just been me interviewing a few other people and some of my stories on that website. Also, I have a, another blog called www.medsailor.com. One word, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. I just started that a little while ago, so I only have a few posts on it. And I've posted a few, uh, a few YouTube videos of, of uh, oh, just various things. Uh, and you can refer to those at the, uh, in the show notes if you like, Jack. Yeah, I'll, I was going to say, as always, I'll put links to those in the show notes. And uh, this has been a really interesting interview, and I, I thank you again for coming on because it's something we've never covered before. And it's a fascinating uh, look at another way to live life. So uh, thanks for being here today. Jack, I appreciate everything you do. Thanks very much. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico along with France today, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.